Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. It is summertime. (laughs) I'm so excited. I have needed warm weather and a swimming pool and time with friends and like a freer schedule, like with my kids and everything for months now. This pandemic has been insane. There have been so many things that were different, that changed. You know, I think a lot of us endured a lot of trauma just from being isolated. And can I just tell you, that's part of the reason we are talking about numbing today. Because definitely over the course of the pandemic, I noticed that I engaged in some numbing behaviors, some numbing mechanisms that maybe I didn't previously. Or some behaviors that I had engaged in previously, I like super engaged in. And I started getting curious with myself probably about November or December because I started noticing that I was having some unwanted side effects from the amount of sleeping and the amount of Netflix watching, as well as the amount of chocolate milk drinking slash comfort food eating that I was engaging in. And I'm so grateful I had those behaviors to help me through some of the difficult emotions. But today we're going to talk about how to become more mindful with our numbing because numbing has both benefits and consequences. And I think it's really important just to understand what numbing is, take away the shame from it because so many of us feel shame when we numb. It can almost feel like we are doing things compulsively and it can feel like we're powerless or that we don't have any power to change the behavior that we're doing. And so today what I really want to talk about is just really getting down into the nuts and bolts of what numbing is, who is more likely to numb, what it means about us, and how we can give ourselves compassion and then If we decide we want to change the behavior, because remember, it is always a choice, we get to decide to keep a behavior if it's still serving us. If we decide we're ready to change the behavior or the cost is outweighing the benefit, then we're going to go into how we can begin to change the behavior. A lot of today's podcast is going to be drawn from Brene Brown's work. I know you're absolutely surprised. I've never quoted Brene Brown here before. And I'm actually going to be quoting another coach. Her name is Kara Lowenthal. 
And she really explained numbing in a couple of her podcasts and blog posts in a way that really got me thinking. So you'll hear a lot of her influence in this podcast today. All right, let's go ahead and dig in. There's some good stuff here today. So first of all, what does it mean to numb? Numbing is anything, and I do mean anything, that we engage in, any activity or substance we consume that helps us get away from our own thoughts and feelings. These behaviors often feel compulsive, and when I say compulsive, I'm going to go ahead and make this distinction. I mean, we feel powerless to change them, or we get frustrated with ourselves because we unconsciously engage in this thing, even when we tell ourselves we won't do it or we won't do it as much anymore. I am not talking about clinical compulsion. If you're experiencing clinical compulsion, you would want to seek out professional medical and mental health advice. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about behaviors that you promise yourself you'll never do again. Things like eating a whole gallon of ice cream. Things like binge watching Netflix for an entire day. Things like scheduling too many things into your schedule so that you're overwhelmed and stressed and there's too much to do. All of those can be numbing behaviors. Now, we often feel like we want to stop doing them, but we also feel like we can't. So if these are things that we want to stop doing, why do we even engage in them in the first place? Like all of our behaviors, we engage in repetitive patterns because they serve us in some way. Think about when you're most likely to eat an entire gallon of ice cream or binge Netflix for an entire day or overschedule yourself and make yourself busy. When does that happen? It usually happens when you're stressed out, when you're feeling really difficult feelings, when you're feeling not good enough. When you're feeling shame about something or you're afraid about something, we bite our nails, we pull our hair, sometimes we binge, sometimes we binge and purge, we engage in all kinds of sexual activities. Sometimes we get into new relationships because the pain from an old relationship is just too much to bear. We do all kinds of things to numb difficult emotions and for a moment, We get to escape. We get to numb out. We get to have a break from what's going on in our thoughts and in our bodies. We don't do this because we're lazy or powerless or gluttonous or any of the things that we were often taught in high demand religion. We do this because we're trying to protect ourselves. We're in overwhelm. We don't know how to handle our feelings or the ones that we're experiencing at the moment, and so we escape. We go into fight or flight, and we flee into a numbing behavior. And it's not just some people that do this. Every single one of us have numbing behaviors. Most of us have multiple numbing behaviors. Depending on what I'm experiencing, if I'm just feeling 
overwhelmed or stressed, I'm reaching for chocolate. My pattern is to reach for high fat, high sugar type of treats. My very favorite is midnight chocolate milk. And I will start having mad cravings for chocolate milk when I've overbooked myself and when my body needs a rest and I don't want to look at everything I have to do and I don't want to engage anymore, but I also don't want to do the hard work of figuring out what needs to be taken off my plate and disappointing people, right? So that is a big one. Whenever I have expectations of myself or I have agreed to fulfill other people's expectations and I'm having a realization that it's not working for me and I'm going to have to do the hard work of either saying no, revamping my schedule or getting more realistic with myself and I don't want to engage in that. And so instead I engage with chocolate. However, when I'm feeling insecure, we talked about this in that welcome episode, when I feel uncertain or insecure, I reach for coping mechanisms like perfectionism. I want my checklists. I want all of that perfect structure. I want something to completely throw myself into and I want to obsess over things as a way to not have to deal with the fear or with the shame or with whatever's coming up. So perfectionism is a big go-to for me. We talked about that in the perfectionism episode that when perfectionism comes up, there is some sort of uncomfortable feeling that I am trying not to experience and I'm trying to protect myself by getting into a perfectionism pattern. Same with people-pleasing, though not as much. Perfectionism is more of a problem for me than people-pleasing, but I can also get into people-pleasing as a way to numb emotion and overachieving. I can become a crazy workaholic when I'm feeling inadequate or uncertain. I can just throw myself into work, which I did a lot during the pandemic. I noticed myself sort of subconsciously getting on the hamster wheel and doing meaningless work. It wasn't even the important work. It was getting busy with the minutiae. So I want you to know that everyone engages in numbing behaviors of one sort or another. Even mental health professionals, my husband has his own numbing strategies. I engage in them. My kids engage in them. My cat engages in them. It is a thing that we do in order to protect ourselves when we feel threatened by our emotions or our thoughts. So if you notice you're engaging in numbing behaviors, give yourself a break. It just means you're alive and your brain is working. That's all it means. And understand that numbing behaviors don't mean that you're a failure or a lazy or gluttonous. It means that you're trying to protect yourself, that you care about yourself. And you're trying to give yourself a break, okay? When we can take away the shame, because so many of us feel shame, when we can take away the shame, we actually make it more likely for us to change, not less likely. A lot of us were raised with this idea that in order to change, we needed to shame people. And we needed to shame ourselves even. That if we didn't have shame that we wouldn't change, we wouldn't become better people. And actually research has shown just the opposite, that the more shame we feel, 
the harder it is for us to change, the harder it is for us to engage with healthier behaviors and healthier patterns because so often our patterns are protecting us from difficult emotions. And what is the most difficult emotion to experience? Like what is the one that is the most painful to feel? Shame, right? So maybe we're feeling fear or we're feeling grief and we go to numb because it is too much to bear. And we look at pornography or we overeat or we drink too much. We do something, right? And we feel a little bit better, though a little bit guilty in the moment, right? And then afterwards, so often we shame ourselves. And when we shame ourselves, what are we creating more of? We're creating more of these really difficult emotions that we don't want to face. And what does it make us want to do? It makes us want to reach for the numbing thing again. It makes us want to reach for the remote control. It makes us want to reach for the video game. We get ourselves into vicious cycles when we shame ourselves for our behaviors. Our behaviors make sense. Our patterns make sense. They are a strategy that we're using to try to avoid emotions and thoughts we don't know how to deal with. And it makes sense that we don't know how to deal with them. We weren't taught as little kids how to deal with difficult feelings. We weren't taught that our anger was okay to experience and that it couldn't hurt us. We weren't taught that we could observe grief, that we could observe loneliness, and that we could learn from it and move through it. We didn't learn that our identities weren't attached to our feelings. We were taught that we were angry, that we were lonely, that we were sad. We weren't taught that we were experiencing anger or experiencing sadness because we were taught that if we allowed ourselves to feel that we would be overpowered by the emotion and that we would become the emotion. And for those of us with religious trauma, we were taught that certain emotions were evil. Anger was of the devil. We shouldn't fear because that meant we didn't have enough faith. There was shame wrapped around feeling certain emotions. There was this idea that we weren't godly enough. So it makes sense that we learned how to stuff emotions with numbing behaviors. It makes sense that we used whatever we could find, whatever device our brain could come up with in order to mute those emotions and to pretend like they weren't there. We have spent a lifetime being taught to numb. We've spent a lifetime being taught that we can't handle our emotions and that our emotions are scary or bad. But we now know that our emotions are the key to a healthy life. Just being able to witness them, acknowledge them, move through them, gain the lessons that our emotions come to teach us about ourselves, really be connected to our inner knowing. But we weren't taught that because the people who were teaching us when we were children didn't know how to teach us. 
If they did, this experience would not be so widespread. This is not just something some of us in high-demand religion experience. This is a pretty universal issue. Humans are just starting to learn how to fully feel their emotions. We're just starting to understand how important it is to be connected to ourselves emotionally. So if you numb, and my guess is that you do, I certainly do, and I haven't met a person yet who doesn't. If you numb, give yourself compassion. You're just trying to protect yourself, comfort yourself, love on yourself the best way you know how. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about some tools to help you be able to comfort and love on yourself in a way that is healthier and serves you more. Okay? As I'm always telling my clients, let's leave the judgy pants at the door. This is a place for curiosity and non-judgment. The more you can remain in non-judgment with yourself with regards to numbing behaviors, the easier it's going to be to empower yourself to make choices that support you and help you get the life you want. So I've already mentioned several different behaviors that can be used as numbing behaviors, and I really mean it when I say anything can be used as a numbing behavior. Numbing behaviors can be anything that we typically think of, the things we were warned about in religion, right? It can be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It can be mindlessly eating comfort food. It can be sleeping for inordinate amounts of time. It can be binging. It can be cutting. It can be hoarding. It can be scrolling social media. It can be golfing. It can be playing basketball. What I find is so interesting though, is that numbing can also include activities that society calls virtuous or that give you that extra hit of social approval. Things like exercising. And some people do it to escape difficult thoughts and emotions. Things like counting calories or ridding your body of toxins or even like decluttering, working at your job. Many CEOs that I know turn to workaholism as a way to deal with difficult feelings. When family life is bad, it's really easy to stay at the workplace where you get all that validation and praise, perfectionism or people-pleasing, again, where you get the validation and praise, but you don't have to deal with your own thoughts, your own wants, your own needs. Childcare can actually even be one of these. Kevin and I were just talking a few nights ago about parenting and how sometimes people will throw themselves into parenting their children in a way that keeps them from feeling thoughts and emotions because they're caretaking these kids and putting all of their time and energy into the kids or into elderly parents and they don't have time to think about their difficult thoughts or feelings. There's just no time to sit still with themselves and become mindful. And it actually brought up something for me there as well because Isn't that what happened in high demand religion for us as well? I remember throwing myself into my callings 
into scripture study, into prayer, into the whole checklist of things that I needed to do. We needed to go to this meeting and to that youth activity, and I needed to do that. There was so much to do that I didn't often have time to sit with my feelings or my thoughts. I was so busy with the busy to-do list, and being crazy busy can be a numbing mechanism. And I'm finding that this is something that's really common to all high-demand religions, is this idea of being really busy, anxiously engaged, is the wording that was used in Mormonism, that we needed to be anxiously engaged in the Lord's work. I don't think that wording is on accident. Anxiously engaged means that we're, I mean, think about when you feel anxious. It's like stressed, it's tight. Like I can feel my shoulders tightening as I'm talking to you about it because anxiously engaged for me in my experience was this constant busyness, this constant needing to do more and more religious things in order to sanctify myself and my family. And I felt so much anxiety about it that I would actually have panic attacks. Being anxiously engaged, having that burden of always needing to do more, I think really can be a numbing mechanism. So It's not really so much about the thing we're engaging in. If literally anything from sleeping to eating to having sex, which are all things our bodies need in order to survive, to, you know, drinking or doing drugs or, you know, pulling our hair or biting our nails, anything, parenting our kids participating in communities, anything can become a numbing mechanism. So it's not that these behaviors are bad. We're not going to quantify them as good and bad because that's just going to create shame, right? There's a way to enjoy all of these behaviors in a way that's healthy and supports us. But when we're unconsciously engaging in them as a way to get out of our body, to not have to feel, to not have to think, to be able to go unconscious, that's when we start having problems. Because some of the consequences of numbing, we've talked about the benefits. You get to like check out for a bit, right? You get to not experience your feelings and that can be useful and helpful sometimes. And there are consequences to that. And some of the negative consequences to that are that when we numb difficult emotions, we're also numbing the emotions we're hoping to experience, things like joy and peace and contentment. Let's talk about joy for a minute. Joy is one of the most vulnerable emotions we can experience. I want you to think about a time when your heart was just bursting with joy. For me, it's often a moment with my kids, they'll do something and it just, maybe they're sleeping and I just have this moment of just complete joy and awe and happiness. 
And Brene Brown talks about those moments and how almost immediately we'll have another thought about, oh my gosh, I hope that they don't die. Or, oh my gosh, we have this fear of this joyful thing now being taken from us. Joy is vulnerable because now we have something that's important to us that feels good. It feels like this great treasure, but now we become a little neurotic about it being taken from us. In order to experience a fullness of joy, we have to be able to trust ourselves to deal with fear. We have to be able to trust ourselves to deal with loss because When we experience joy, we're expanding and opening ourselves up to the possibility of loss. There is now something that we could lose. And in order to be able to tolerate joy, we have to be able to tolerate the fear of losing that joy. And we have to be able to tolerate the loss should the thing that brings us joy be taken away. We only build up this tolerance by allowing ourselves to feel through the difficult feelings. We build self-trust. We learn that we can rely on ourselves, that we will be there when things get hard. And when we know that about ourselves, when we know things might get tough and I might experience loss, but I have experienced loss before and I was there for myself, I know that I will be there for myself again should I lose something again. I can trust myself to experience loss and therefore I can open myself up to joy because I know that I will catch myself should I lose the thing that brings me joy. When we allow ourselves to feel into all of our emotions, it broadens the spectrum of emotions we can feel because we've built the trust in order to feel those things. So there's all different kinds of costs that happen whenever we numb. You've got the direct consequences, which are like your credit card debt, for instance, if shopping is how you numb, or the time spent if Netflix is how you numb. If Netflix is how you numb and you're trying to build a business, then you may spend tons of time watching shows and binging on different TV shows, but maybe not as much time getting the expertise or the qualifications or the clients or whatever that you would like to build your business. If golfing is your numbing mechanism of choice, You may be spending a ton of time on the green and not so much with your family, which may have relationship costs. So there's all different kinds of direct consequences for our numbing behavior. But then there's also the indirect consequences. We talked about the shame and the judgment that we often feel, the time and the energy, and we talked about how you can't selectively numb emotions. So I want you to really think about the costs. We've talked about the benefits. Let's really think about the costs and ask yourself, what does it cost you to not be present or connected to yourself in your life? And if you need to pause this podcast, pause it and just sit with that question for a bit. What are my numbing behaviors? First of all, what do I do when I feel stressed? What do I do when I feel angry? or afraid, or lonely, or vulnerable. When I feel grief, what do I reach for to make me feel better for a small time? And then, is there a cost? 
to that, to not be present. And what is that cost? Now, I'm going to reiterate this again. Numbing is not bad. Numbing is simply a strategy we use for coping that has both a benefit and a cost. And what we're striving for here isn't to get completely rid of our numbing mechanisms. We're still going to have times of overwhelm or times where things are just difficult and we need a mental and emotional break. What we're striving for, though, is to move out of the subconscious, mindless numbing that happens impulsively. And we're trying to move into conscious numbing so that you can decide, you know what? I am overwhelmed and this is what I'm going to do to give myself a mental and emotional break. We can learn to be mindful about when we engage in numbing and we get to weigh the benefits and the costs beforehand. We even get to decide how long we numb. And when we make it a mindful, conscious choice, it's empowering because we aren't lying to ourselves anymore and we don't feel like we're out of control. We know what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we also don't lie to ourselves that we're powerless to stop when we're ready. So by becoming mindful of our numbing behaviors, we still get to numb when we need to, but we do it when we've weighed that it's in our best interest. We get to do it with intention, with consciousness, with mindfulness. And I really want to bring up that as we do the work to heal trauma, sometimes we are experiencing more negative emotion than we're used to. And it can become really heavy and overwhelming. And in those times, you may choose to numb out a little bit as a way to rest from the heaviness. I want to reiterate again, there is no right way to do this. There is no right way. You are the authority in your life and you get to decide when you want to numb and when it's not in your best interest. You get to decide and it gets to be right for you. I love something that Kara says. She says, when you make a choice on purpose, you are by definition not being compulsive. Active choice and control are the opposite of compulsion. Now, for those of you who have some numbing mechanisms that you've become aware of, I would really, really encourage you to sit down and write down what comes to mind. And just maybe even take a couple of days. If you want to, pause right here, take the next couple of days, and just become aware of when you're numbing. And really ask yourself, what was I feeling right before I numbed? How did I feel in the middle of the numbing behavior? And then how did I feel after? And that's actually a great way to figure out if you are using a behavior to numb. Because there are some things in my life, like being a workaholic, for instance, I just thought I was highly motivated until I started asking myself the question, why do I feel compelled to go up? and research? Why do I feel compelled to go right? 
Why do I feel compelled? What is going on? What am I trying to accomplish here? Just getting curious. Remember, no judgment, just curiosity. And I would write about that for a while. And then I would ask myself, what was I feeling right before I had that need to go up and get on my computer? How did I feel when I was on my computer writing? And then how did I feel afterwards? So during the pandemic, having my kids at home, doing school while running a business and having my husband work from home, you guys, there was so much togetherness here. I love my family and I love my alone time and I did not get a lot of alone time. So guess what I did? I went off into research La La Land, which had its benefits. You guys, I learned so much stuff, but it also had its consequences. Sometimes I felt detached from my family. And when I started noticing I was feeling guilty about not spending enough time with my family, even though we were all at home all the time, that was my cue to get curious with myself and be like, huh, okay. So I have control over my schedule. I have the ability to spend time with my kids. Why am I not? And what am I doing instead? And just allowed myself to get curious. I followed those emotions, those guilt feelings, and even the shame feelings, because there were some of those too, and allowed myself to get curious. Okay, is that true that I don't have time to spend with them? No, we're here 24-7, and we've been like that for months. Then what is really going on? And that's when I noticed, oh, I'm escaping into books. Oh, I'm escaping into my computer and into writing. Oh, I'm escaping into social media. I'm escaping into engaging in conversations with people online that are not living here at home with me. So just allow yourself to get curious about your feelings. Notice what you're feeling before, what you feel during, and what you feel after. And then here was actually a big key that Kara taught me when I was listening to her podcast, you know, in November, and I listened to it again this week, it was, if I didn't have access to the thing that I do, how would I feel? And if you feel like anxious or aggravated, it's a pretty good clue that you're using it as a numbing mechanism. If I thought about having to be completely and fully present, like in October, for instance, when all of the election stuff was going on and my kids were both home in quarantine and, I mean, stuff got real, you guys. And I, if I thought about not getting to disappear into my work or my screen, yeah, I felt a little anxious. And that's when I was like, okay, yeah, I'm using it as a numbing tool and I'm doing it not consciously. So how do I make this more conscious? And that's what we're actually going to talk about next is if you've gotten to the point where you're like, and this is a bit of a problem in my life and I would like to have more mindfulness and consciousness around my behaviors, I'm going to give you a couple of tips that Kara gave to me and we're going to talk about what you can do if you decide that you would like to change some of your numbing behaviors and make them serve you better. Because remember, they are not right or wrong. Right now, they're serving you in a certain way, but there's a cost-benefit ratio. That's the business person in me talking. 
but it's true in psychology as well. There's a cost-benefit ratio, and that's what we're weighing here. If you notice yourself feeling a lot of guilt and shame about it, or if you feel like, I wish I could do this differently, I wish I didn't feel so compelled to do these certain things, then it sounds like the cost is outweighing the benefit for you. And it's time to maybe look at changing the behavior in a way that would support you better. Okay, she talks about two things, planning and allowing. And I'm going to talk about how that has worked in my own life and invite you to try it out in yours, okay? So planning. I love planning, but this was not fun planning for me when I very first started. We're going to talk about my chocolate milk addiction, which is hilarious. I left the Mormon church. I tried, you know, I tried alcohol. I tried coffee. I tried all the things that I wasn't allowed to try. And my numbing mechanism of choice as far as things to consume is the very same as it has been, you know, since I was in my 20s. I love chocolate milk. I especially love this this special brand of chocolate milk at our grocery store. It is like melted chocolate ice cream, you guys. It is the richest, yummiest, promised land. I'm giving you a shout out. It's promised land midnight chocolate milk. It's my very favorite. And, and I have no sponsorship there. Like I just love them that much. I reached for it, I think every day in October. There were a couple of times, husband, if you're hearing this, this is me being shame resilient. We're going to talk about it because remember, shame needs secrecy, silence, and judgment to grow. In October, the week before Halloween, when our kids were insane, there were three days in one week where I had chocolate milk at breakfast. I escaped to the store. That was another thing I was doing was going to the store because it was quiet in my car. And no one necessarily talked to me at the store. I would go to the store, buy the chocolate milk, which in and of itself was a numbing mechanism, and then sit in the car and drink the chocolate milk. And there were three days in a row when stuff was so crazy and there were school projects to like video and turn in and just all of that. When I had chocolate milk twice in a day. And when I say chocolate milk, you guys might be thinking of like a little carton, like what they used to give us in elementary school. No, this is a big old thing. And there's like, I don't know, a thousand calories in each bottle. So yeah, I was drinking 2,000 calories of chocolate milk (laughs) these three days because they were so stressful. What I realized is that I needed to start planning to allow myself to numb during that time. I listened to her podcast sometime in October and I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm going to try this. And guys, everything I talk about here, I have tried And it has worked for me. Often I've tried it with my clients. I've suggested it. It's worked for them or the vast majority of them. And so these are all ideas that I've tested out and that often my clients have tested out. So I'm giving you the best of the best here. So planning. What I learned was to plan for myself to get to numb with the chocolate milk on the weekend. And this does a couple of things, you guys. First of all, when you plan for something, I would plan going to the store. 
I would visualize the experience. I would visualize how much of the bottle I was going to drink. And you better bet I was drinking the whole bottle. I would plan like how it would taste and where I would be. And I would plan to be wrapped up in my cozy blanket, in my cozy spot, with a good book in hand, and my whole bottle of ice-cold chocolate milk. Now, planning makes it conscious. So now my chocolate milk consumption was no longer subconscious. It was now a conscious act. That is part of changing the behavior. We're getting it out of the mindless, subconscious, reflexive place. Because this is a neural pathway we've built. My body says, we're overwhelmed. We reach for chocolate milk. That is a neural pathway that my body developed hardcore, particularly in October. So it was already there, but in October, man, we just like went down that path so many times we like carved grooves into my brain. And so it's taken a while. It's taken several months for me to notice I'm stressed, but on the weekend, I get chocolate milk, okay? I'm stressed. It's okay. I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to process my emotions. I'm going to sit with what I'm feeling. But then on Saturday, I get to numb for however long it takes me to drink that bottle of chocolate milk with a cozy blanket, a good book, and chocolate milk, and no one talking to me. And sometimes I would do this in my car, you guys. I'd go, I'd lock the doors, I'd bring our favorite brown blanket, and I would just sit there with it snowing outside drinking chocolate milk because we were stuck in our four walls. Planning makes it conscious. The second thing is when you plan for something, it's no longer that spontaneous, naughty thing that we do. So it takes a little bit of the compulsion away from it because it's simply not as fun or as naughty. The third thing that it does for us is it really helps us combat those messages our brain tells us about our power to stop. Because I would drink the full bottle of chocolate milk. I would feel guilty that I did it again. And I would vow that I wasn't going to have chocolate milk anymore the rest of the month. And sometimes I would find myself at that gosh darn grocery store again that afternoon buying chocolate milk and it was in my hand and I was checking out before I even recognized what was going on. Just noticing I'm doing it again, hearing that pattern, putting it into practice, practicing something different and planning to give myself the opportunity to numb was really helpful. Now, I know there are some of you that are like, but I don't want to drink chocolate milk anymore, or I don't want to do whatever the behavior is that you choose to numb your difficult thoughts and emotions. Here's the thing, though, is that hasn't worked for you, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it, and we wouldn't be having this discussion on this podcast. I told myself I was going to go cold turkey with the chocolate milk so many times, and yet I would still rationalize and go and buy the chocolate milk on an impulse. My guess is that it works for a while for you to swear it off, but eventually you come back to it. By making it a conscious thing that you plan for, you're actually rewiring your brain and creating new neural pathways and giving yourself more power and making it easier to stop completely if that's what you choose to do in the future. 
So the next part I want to talk about is allowing. And just like dealing with emotions, we can learn to allow our urges to be there without them meaning anything about us, without engaging in them, and just acknowledging them and getting curious with them. They may feel intense at first, but usually they fade as we stop trying to resist them and we allow them without acting on them. Over time, the urges fade because remember, they're just a neural pathway. That's it. They're just a quick connection between point A and B in your brain. As we develop new ones, the old ones are going to get weaker and weaker and weaker as we practice doing something new. So what I'm going to invite you to do is to just get curious with your urges. Once you've noticed what your numbing behaviors are, see if you can track the urges for that numbing behavior. I followed Kara's advice and I started writing down every time I had an urge for chocolate milk. And I actually would put them in my voice notes when I was busy doing other things and then at the end of the night I would write them all down. And she encouraged me to try to get a hundred on a piece of paper. And it was really fascinating and helpful to see how often I had urges for chocolate milk. And you guys, chocolate milk is not my only numbing behavior. I have several. I'm just bringing up this one because I don't know. It's just what came to mind first. But as I wrote down the urges for my numbing behavior, and just kept track of them, I became more aware of them, which allowed me to be more mindful of them, which allowed me to be more conscious of when I engaged with them and when I did not. And as I did that, again, I was giving myself power to create a new neural pathway, a new way of being. The other cool thing is, as I learned to recognize my urges, I could then start using that urge, just like I talked about in the Perfectionism podcast. I could then start using that urge as a reminder to check in with myself and be mindful. I could say, oh my gosh, I'm craving chocolate milk. Like I'm fantasizing about going to the store and buying this chocolate milk. And I could say, okay, I know that that's a numbing mechanism for me often. What's going on with me? What am I feeling right now? What thoughts am I having? What does it feel like in my body? Do I have discomfort anywhere? Can I name the emotions? And as I would do that, I often recognized I was feeling some sort of discomfort in my body, some sort of uncomfortable emotion or uncomfortable thought. And when I would check in with it, guess what would happen? I'd move through it and the craving for chocolate milk would often go away. That urge to go buy it would go away. You guys, I know this takes effort in the beginning. It's a lot. It takes effort in the beginning. It can feel really difficult in the beginning. Your cravings, your urges to numb may be super intense at the beginning, but they will subside as you practice. And that's what this is. This is not about being perfect. This is simply about practicing. Over time, we're going to create a new neural pathway. We're going to create a new pattern. And you're going to be able to mindfully and consciously choose when to check out and when you would rather stay present and get the benefits from that. You are always the authority in your own life and you get to choose what serves you best. Okay, 
Thank you so much for joining me today. This is a topic that I'm actually really passionate about because this is something I started learning about 11 years ago whenever I was diagnosed with clinical depression. And honestly, you guys, this practice of checking in with myself and learning about numbing behaviors and allowing them to become reminders to me to be mindful has changed so many things. And yes, I still get sucked into the vortex of numbing, just like I told you about in October. I can definitely get sucked into the vortex of numbing, but I also don't stay there for years like I used to anymore. Now I catch my behavior sometimes after just one experience or even just the urge for an experience, but often it's after doing it a couple of times and recognizing, okay, we have a pattern here that we should probably look into. I hope this was helpful for you guys. Remember, I have a brand new course that helps with numbing, with mindfulness, with getting in touch with your inner knowing, and it's called Reclaim Your Identity. So if you are recovering from high demand religion and you want someone to hold your hand and really provide structure and support for you as you figure out what you value, what you like and dislike, where your boundaries are, how you're standing in your way, what your limiting beliefs about yourself and the world and other people might be, please go to the link in the show notes or to my website, emancipatedcoaching.com and look at the coaching group programs and consider signing up. We're having live calls. They start on Friday and I'm answering questions and providing support. And if you sign up by June the 10th, you get a free one-hour coaching session with me, a one-to-one personalized coaching session. I'll be able to help support you through questions that come up. And this will happen about week three or four in your process with the program so that as you become more self-aware, you're going to have more and more questions and it's going to be the perfect time for us to meet and to go through what you're experiencing and to help you gain that understanding and that trust with yourself to move forward. Plus, the community is going to be amazing and there's going to be live videos. I'm providing additional training there. It is one of the most supportive and least expensive ways for you to get the support you need and really move forward after a transition from a high demand religion. I believe so deeply in coaching because so many of us have all of the power we need to move forward in life, but we don't always have all of the tools. Let me provide those to you. Let me support you as you learn to engage with those new tools and implement them and start moving in the direction that would feel good for you. I can't wait to work with you, you guys. I really am so excited and I believe deeply in this program that I've put together. I believe deeply in coaching and I believe deeply in not giving the high demand religions of our life any more power now that we've left. And we do this by empowering ourselves with new tools to move forward. I hope you'll do that for yourself and I look forward to working with you. Thank you for joining me today and we'll talk soon.